Hey, everybody, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephan Cox. Today, as part of our town hall series in partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network and Indivisible Tacoma, we have our virtual town hall with Hillary Franz. She is Washington's Commissioner of Public Lands, and she is running for re-election in November. Join us now for a conversation with Hillary Franz, recorded live on the evening of Tuesday, May 19th. We are very excited to have with us tonight Washington State's Commissioner of Public Lands, Hillary Franz. Prior to being elected commissioner in 2016, Hillary served as executive director of the environmental nonprofit FutureWise and also on numerous boards and commissions. From 2008 to 2011, she served on the Bainbridge Island City Council, and she is running for re-election this year. So we are so happy that she could join us tonight. Hillary Franz, welcome. Thank you. It's a great honor. I, of course, wish I could be with all of you in person. I always love the person-to-person uh, connection, but i thrilled that we can make this happen and grateful. So thank you. I'm looking forward to tonight's conversation. So am I. And I, we're going to do the best that we can to kind of create a facsimile of an in-person event. You know, I think where I want to begin, for those who may not be familiar, just give us a thumbnail sketch of what the Commissioner of Public Lands does. Yes, yeah, so I am one of your statewide electeds, and I oversee basically six agencies. Um, first, I oversee 2.6 million acres of aquatic land. So think the entire coast, your Puget Sound, your rivers, lakes, and streams. We have a management role where we actually have leases with everything from ports and marinas to shellfish growers to we actually harvest our own gooey duck. The money we generate from the management of this land goes towards salmon habitat restoration and protection and to public access to our waterways. I then oversee 3 million acres of uplands. Those are the lands that are above water, and I don't mean financially above water. I mean above water. 2 million acres of forest land, a million acres of agricultural land. We're actually the largest wheat producer in the state. We're becoming one of the largest vineyard producers and one of the largest clean energy producers. I then also have a pretty significant portfolio of commercial industrial lands, everything from Costco, Safeway, Fred Myers, business parks. We generate about $325 million in the management of those uplands. About 125 million funds K through 12, university, community technical colleges, 200 million funds, basic counties, health, housing, and human services. In King County, we're like 0.08% of their operating budget. But in many of the more suburban rural counties, we're about 40% of their entire operating budget. So we're talking about health, housing, police, fire, transportation, libraries, right? I then oversee the second largest amount of recreation land, second to the federal government. Everything from scuba dive parks to mountain bike and horseback riding and, and hiking trails. I oversee um, one part of my role of regulate, regulatory, and it's only one, is I oversee the timber industry. So everything from the large timber companies like Weyerhaeuser down to the small forest landowner, and about 40% of our forests in Washington State are small forest landowners. Well, there is so much that I want to unpack about everything that you just laid out. Uh, you mentioned that your work generates revenue for the state in the neighborhood of about $325 million. Can you talk a little bit about how that money is generated? Yeah, and just so you know, I don't generate revenue for the state. I manage uh, 3 million acres of land that has is managed in trust. So at statehood, every state, the federal government gave out land that to every state that was to be managed 
to be able to fund public education. And then during economic downturns, uh, like the depression, counties, people couldn't pay their taxes and counties found themselves all of a sudden taking over a lot of land, different types of land. And they didn't have the resources to manage it. And because the Department of Natural Resources was already managing land on behalf of the beneficiaries of schools, K through 12 and universities, that we set, the state set up a system where we would manage those lands on behalf of the county. The money we generate does not go to the general fund. It does not, the legislature doesn't oversee that money. The governor doesn't oversee that. It goes directly like a fiduciary responsibility. If you had a trust or you were a beneficiary of a will, right? And money would be responsible for being managed to go down to you directly. Um, we have an intergenerational responsibility to manage these on behalf of if it's school trust lands to manage on behalf of the K through 12 universities intergenerationally over time and the same for the counties. Got it. Okay. So then how specifically is the revenue generated? So the revenue is generated in the context, if it is timber land, right? If it's working forest land, it's it's generated by the harvesting of timber and then the replanting and reharvesting. Um, if it's agriculture land, we lease out that land to wheat growers, to uh, vineyards to high value crops and low value crops. If it's clean energy, we lease out to clean energy, solar and wind developers to generate revenue. We generate revenue from those leases, but also they generate energy. If it's a commercial industrial property, it depends on what its use is. If it's a business park, uh, then the lease payments that come from that business park go out towards the school or they go out towards the county, depending on who the beneficiary of that land is. Okay. Thank you for clearing all of that up. And I will just confess that there is a lot that I don't know uh, about the way that public lands work. And so uh, I'm going to ask probably a number of kind of, quote unquote, dumb host questions. So I, I, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to clarify all that. Totally fine. A lot of this is education. And I will say we do have conservation areas. We manage natural conservation resource areas and natural heritage conservation areas, which are sort of those preeminent areas where you can't find certain wildlife or um, plant life anywhere else in the world. And we then manage those on behalf of their benefit as, um, although the challenge is the legislature has not given us much money, but we keep trying to secure more of that land based on, um, and we also have aquatic reserves. Unbelievable place for forage, fish, and salmon. But again, we have to purchase those. I want to circle back on all of that, uh, but let's start here. Based on the questions that we've received, the climate crisis is so top of mind for our viewers. I would love it if you could just talk a little bit about some of what you have done to fight climate change during your tenure. Absolutely. So first, I would say our agency, more than any other entity, is on the front lines of climate change, whether it's the increasing wildfires that we see uh, catastrophic wildfires in every corner of the state. 40% of our fires these past two years have been on the west side of the state. It is no longer an eastern Washington issue. It's an entire state issue. Or dying forests, where we have 2.7 million acres just in central and eastern Washington alone that are already dying due to disease, changing climate, insect infestation, or ocean acidification and sea level rise that is impacting our salmon species and orca, but also our shellfish. Um, we're now responding to floods, and that isn't part of our purview, but because of the snow pack melting so fast from Canada, it's rushing down and 
flooding our area. So we are on the front lines of a rapidly changing climate. And my belief is we have to do everything possible to start not only sequestering more carbon, but also developing climate resilience plan so that we are managing our lands, recognizing that changing climate to ensure we have the water, agriculture, and our forests um, for the long term. So, so here's, here's one of those questions that where I'm, I'm just going to pop in for clarification. For those who aren't familiar, can you explain carbon sequestration? Sure. So carbon sequestration, we have enormous amount of carbon in the atmosphere. Majority of it comes from industry. It comes from transportation in Washington State. It's our largest greenhouse gas emissions, carbon emissions. Wildfire has been second in 2015 and 2018 as carbon emissions. So carbon sequestration is the ability to capture that carbon in the atmosphere and hold it, right, so that it isn't continuing to create the climate crisis we have. For us in Washington State, your greatest carbon sequestration opportunity is our forest lands and also agricultural lands. And we are looking at aquatics in the context of vegetation and opportunities um, for capturing carbon within the aquatic lands area. So two things that we're doing, one on the carbon sequestration side, we've actually launched a carbon sequestration advisory group that is a broad, diverse group from across the state with different sectors to begin to actually develop carbon sequestration policy, but also carbon sequestration markets. California is leading in this area. I signed a memorandum uh, agreement with them to work together because it took them five years for them to develop a carbon sequestration policy around natural resource lands. It's a little more complicated than transportation, right? And how you create a market in that space is not simple, but I wanted us to get there faster. We are now in the process of not only developing what those policies are, but also starting to develop how do we start to play into markets? How do we leverage the lands we have, our working forest lands? Those lands that should be a set aside for conservation because they're high value in carbon sequestration. They're also high value in wildlife habitat, as well as our working forest land that have carbon sequestration value, maybe not at the same as a conservation land, so that we have different levels of marketplace, not only for our agency to play in, and for the legislature to help fund, but also for the private sector, those small forest landowners, right, and larger landowners. On the climate side, we developed, uh, launched first part this year, the first ever climate resilience plan for the state of Washington. We spent the last several years actually analyzing and assessing what are we seeing as the change climate change is having on our lands. We're in all 39 counties. We have the most diverse land use type in our portfolio and what are we seeing in already climate change is impacts on those lands today but what's likely 10 years from now 20 years from now and we now have developed a plan that is specifically sets forth what we need to be doing in the management of those lands to make them more resilient um, and so every part of our operations will have a climate component in its decision making in addition to that, we're now working with communities across the state to make them more resilient, like Wenatchee and Chelan that are on the front lines of drought, they're on the front lines of wildfire, dying forests, right? It's having huge impact, water resources. So we are developing with them a community climate resilience plan, the first one for that community. I, this will bring us to our first listener question, and I, you started to address this, uh, I believe, and uh, I, I would love to get a little bit more on this. Has there been any progress? Tim and Hannah both asked this question. Has there been any progress on establishing a way for trust fund, bene- uh, trust fund beneficiaries of DNR-managed lands to receive payments for leaving forests uncut to sequester carbon? 
So that's the work we're doing right now. We're actually in figuring out one, we need a market. There's no marketplace. And unless the only way I get funding for that is if it comes from the legislature, because I can't create it. Right. And so what we've been trying to do is actually create that market and start to partner with entities. Um, not we, we're not going to wait for the legislature to create it. We've all seen how we had a climate initiative. We tried to move climate legislation. One tried to move this year. It hasn't made progress. My hope and my belief one will happen, but I don't want to waste any time waiting for it. So we're starting to create that market as best we can and just enter into the national market. When we do that, we'll be able to leverage that on those lands. This may be connected. Uh, you can tell me if it is. Uh, Brenda asks, what is the timeline for the pending lawsuits against the state regarding the sustainable harvest plan? So those lawsuits are in process, and like most lawsuits, they take a while. So most of that will happen over the next year and well into 2021. Well, can you tell us what the Sustainable Harvest Plan is and who has brought suit? Yeah, sure. So every single, every decade, um, the state has to pro create a sustainable harvest calculation. And it specifically sets, and it's by law, it's under statute, we're required to do this. It sets how much our cut is going to be over those 10 years. And uh, when I came into office, and I'm trying to get question on the numbers, we were already four years into the sustainable harvest calculation. It hadn't gotten done on time. We were well into it. Um, and so we developed that sustainable harvest calculation. There's a significant reduction in the amount of cut if you look back over the last, the decade before and the decade before that. So a lawsuit has been brought uh, against uh, the Department of Natural Resources for the significant reduction in the sustainable harvest level. I have a very direct and general question on climate from Julie, and she asked if you will stand against the creation of any new fossil fuel infrastructure in Washington. So I have already stood against that. If you might remember the coal export facilities up in Bellingham, as well as the one down in Longview, uh, those were in the process when I was running for office and I went and challenged the one in Longview. The other one had already been concluded. Uh, it was a very, we were sued and litigated and uh, that lawsuit, I can happily say we prevailed. It was going to be a difficult lawsuit. It was a, uh, and so the great things I've stood up to fossil fuels, I've stood up to oil drilling off of our shorelines and I will continue to stand up any chance I get. I am all about building a clean energy future. We have now done 21 wind leases. We are in the process of building new with, and I'm now in conversation with the largest utilities down to the PUDs about how we leverage that are not value agriculture, high value in but our lands for wind um, so that we can actually be able to build that uh, 20 by 2040, if not sooner. Okay. The clean energy future. You know, generally speaking, it occurs to me that you really have to balance environmental impact with economic cost. I mean, there can be economic downsides to doing the right thing for the environment and then vice versa. I want to personally, how do you strike that balance? You know, so I would say, I think for too long, and I've been an environmental land use attorney for over 20 years, and I come from an environmental background and um, I think for too long, we have seen and had this understanding out in the world that says the economy and the environment are against each other. And the reality is they're not. And if we see limited exception, and what I mean by that is look at and say, look, every single person has the right to clean air. 
food on their table. They have a right food a roof over their head. They have a right. They have right to great education and the basic benefits all depend on for quality of life. And so, if we could create that our economy in working with the environment should actually ensure all of those rights because they go together. Um, and I think too long, we think we've created this fight and it goes back, you can go back to the spotted owl days and you go back. The reality is when you go across the state and you go into many of our rural communities, they're dealing with seven to 12% unemployment, not just since the recession, but for generations where so many of the kids and now who are adults and parents grew up without any opportunity for a good education and good job that guaranteed that kids would have a future than the one they inherited. And I believe as long as we continue to stop my sense, well, we to just do it as the environment and whatever we do is gonna impact their jobs, we're already limiting our ability to come up with great solutions. We need, what I've been doing, and I launched the Rural Economic Development Initiative when I came into office, because my belief is if we go in and get on the ground in a community and we understand what their greatest challenges are, education, jobs, housing, environment, and we say they can work together if we find solutions at that community level and work with that community to develop them. And so if you take that sort of more uh, going in the community, understand their economic challenges, understand their social challenges, understand the environmental challenge, and then work with the community to develop the solutions together. You can do it. And a perfect example. Here's a perfect example, okay? Derelict vessels. You know what a derelict vessel is, right? Derelict vessel, right? There's a boat and they're sinking in the water and you're probably like, why won't somebody get them out? And for every boat I get out, my agency has to pull another three out and there isn't enough money, right? There isn't enough money by the legislature to fund removal of those boats. And so the, when I first came into office, we had one boat that was gonna cost a million dollars to remove. And we didn't have a million dollars. And so by this year, it's now $3 million to remove, right? And the, it's sinking farther and more toxins are spreading and contaminating the water in our salmon. So we launched the Rural Economic Development Initiative and a guy out of um, Aberdeen, and we all, many of you may have been to Aberdeen. Aberdeen has had a rise in economy and a very significant decline in their economy and their community well-being. And he had an idea, you know, we could create a waste stream economy from those derelict vessels. So if you think about it, if you ever seen my helicopters that fight in the, uh, our wildfires, every one of them fought in the Vietnam War. Every single one. I have 10 and I have an unbelievable mechanic to piece them together part by part by part. And they go onto the internet to find those parts, right? And he's like, we could do the same thing with boats. There are boats all over the world. Some are new and some are old and people are always looking for the parts. So we helped get a million dollars to open up a facility in the Port of Ilwaco, one of our poor rural communities on the coast, where now 25 new jobs are being created. They're taking the boats out of the water they're creating a waste stream economy, taking them part by part, putting them on the internet. And ideally, if he can make this go, it starts to pay for itself versus the state. That's one example. I can keep going. Another example. <laughs> stop, but I can keep on going, right? Well, Clean energy is a perfect example, but go ahead. Well, one, certainly one thing that I was going to ask you about is how all this fits into the economic recovery and how job creation can be uh, something that, that comes out of this through public lands. 
Yeah, so I think one of the things that's really, we're looking at is we were already engaged in this space. We've already built some unbelievable relationships at the local level and not just, I'm a Democrat, I'm clearly a progressive Democrat, but I've worked across the state in some of our more rural Republican conservative communities. And we're talking about climate change and we're talking about resilience and we're talking about how do we help that set them up for success environmentally, but also economically. And so I think the way we're gonna have to move this recovery is one, we're gonna have to realize that we for too long have been thinking status quo, that there isn't any environmental crisis or disaster, that there isn't any health disaster, human health disaster, like a global pandemic, and that our economy is pretty robust and strong and sure could be better, but it's not going to have any significant shakeup by climate or global pandemics. And I think this was a wake-up call. We have seen the transformation of the way people are behaving, not only in the reduced carbon footprint of transportation, but other things. Business are having to reinvent themselves. My belief is we should not use this to go, oh, once this is over, let's go back to the status quo. We should instead be saying, we have got to have more local economies, like agriculture. Right now, people can't purchase meat. It's being gone, right? Whether you are a vegetarian or not, look, the reality is more people eat meat. And they are have, because so much of the processing plants are not in the state, our cattle growers are not ones that get much benefit off the management of their lands and production of cattle. And then when people are trying to purchase, if they can't get it, They've lost it. We have got to go to more local agriculture. We got to leverage our community-based agricultural production. We've got to make more things more state-focused and what's in our community and how do we strengthen our community so that there are the jobs, they're getting good-paying jobs, that they, they understand the environmental impacts of not good stewardship, right? And where they're understanding that the money that is generated there stays in the community and helps grow that community. That's the direction we were going. We're now just going to accelerate it and put it on steroids. I want to stay at the state level because we've gotten so many questions about very specific projects throughout the state uh, that people would like to get your take on. Uh, Lisa and John both ask what your opinion is of the proposed Chehalis Dam. Yeah, so I, uh, one of my uh, staff members sits on this. Um, right now, what we're doing is we're waiting for all of the studies to get done, which will be completed later this year. I have not had a chance uh, with until those studies are completed. I will review them and we will make a determination based on what the science says. But I'm right now not in a place of making a decision because we're waiting for those studies to come out. Gotcha. Okay. Kevin Jones asks, some states lease rates for public lands that are higher for solar farms or wind farms than for livestock. What is the situation in our state? Do you think the rate should be equivalent if they are not currently? So it, they currently are not. We right now for grazing leases, it's about $1.43 an acre. For our wind and solar, it's about 1100 to $1,400 an acre. Uh, vineyards, by the way, in many places, we're getting about $1,100 an acre for vineyards. So wine is a mm. good thing for schools. I say drink more wine. <laughs> good for the kids, folks. Um, uh, but so what I would say on that piece is, you know, we, we believe that the way the lease rate is set is largely based on the market. It's not necessarily based on us. And a certain piece of land a certain piece of land on solar may get $300 an acre and another piece may get $1,100 an acre. It really depends on the production level of it. It depends on the size of it. 
Um, on grazing, oftentimes, um, you know, there's a big challenge and a question there of whether it's the right price or value or not. Um, and I think that's a much larger question. Sure. Well, I want to talk next about wildfire season. As we know, the 2018 season was just unprecedented. What can we expect this year? Yeah. So let me first give you just so people understand. So 2018, we had 1,850 wildfires, most ever in Washington state's history. 40% of those fires were west of the Cascades, which was a brand new phenomenon. We had never had that high of a percentage on this side of the Cascades. Can I ask why that was the case? Uh, hotter, drier temperatures and conditions on the west side. Uh, we were are, we are already seeing the dying of, off of forest now in the west. I've been up in the San Juans, Whidbey, um, up in sort of, we're now seeing more fires in the Whatcom, Mount Baker area, even down into Snohomish. Our two largest fires this year to date was Snohomish and Whatcom uh, just a few weeks ago. Um, and so, and then we're also seeing that, you know, more challenged uh, fires down the West. You also have more people in those areas and they're 90% of our fires are caused by humans. So you're seeing brush fires, you're seeing campfires. You may see also less awareness about how hot and dry it really is because everybody's so used to uh, fire, you know, is the east side of the state. And so, I'll, and I'll give you a context that right now today, we've had 269 fires already this year. To give you a context, uh, 10-year average is 103 at this time. Now, part of why that is, a majority of those, and um, 25% west of the Cascades, 75% east of the Cascades, a majority of those are debris brush fires. So people are staying home and they're staying safe based on COVID rules, but they're going out in their yard and they're doing the maintenance and upkeep and they're like, oh, I've got this giant brush fire a brush pile, I'll burn it. And there we then have a burn that has gotten out of hand because they didn't realize how dry it is. So 18, in 2018, we had 1,850 most fires ever, worst air quality world from Spokane to Seattle. We had 440,000 acres burned, okay? Give you a context of that, 2015, we had 1,600 fires, majority all east of the Cascades, a million acres burned. So we had more fires in 2018. We had more geography covered, but we reduced the number of acres burned by 60%. Now, to give you a little bit more information, if it was 1963 and I was Burt Cole, the commissioner of public lands at the time, I probably would wear a hat like you are. <laughs> and I, uh, I, he issued a Christmas card out and he said, you know, it's been one of the worst fire seasons ever in our history and 660 acres burned. Wow. Okay. 660 acres, 1963, 2015, a million acres burned. So we are seeing more significant catastrophic fires this year. Unfortunately, based on the numbers today, we are predicting it is going to be a tough fire season. Um, right now, uh, Washington and Oregon have the highest wildfire risk in the nation um, through August 2020. Um, and it is because it's hotter, drier conditions. We're loving, since we're all stuck at home, we're loving the sunshine. We're loving the warm weather. But let's be frank, March is not supposed to be sunny, and it was. April was not supposed to be sunny, and it was. Um, and we have a lot more people who are home, and fires are getting started. 
um, which leads to, and oftentimes too, when we have a lighter year, last year we had 1,165 fires and about 130,000 acres burned. Oftentimes when you have a lighter year, the next year is more significant because you have more fuel load on the, on the forest floor. Well, can you talk a little bit about some of the things that the Department of Natural Resources does to try to mitigate the severity of these wildfires? So we're taking two, we're tackling it in two ways. Uh, well, three ways, let me just say. So the first way we're tackling it is uh, by, uh, I came into office and realized that after the 2014, 2015 fires, when not only a million acres burned in 2015, but we tragically lost three firefighters' lives, that we had to change the way we're fighting fires. And I wasn't gonna get any new resources. Department of Natural Resources, DNR, stood for do not resuscitate mm. when I came into office. Okay. Do not respond. Do not resuscitate. You cannot have a worse brand, especially if your job is fighting wildfires. And I knew that unless I changed the way we were perceived and the way we fought fires, I would not get any new funding from the legislature. And we needed new funding. Remember, at that point in time, I had eight helicopters from the Vietnam War to fight fires, right? And I only had, we're the largest firefighting team, and we had 43 firefighters, 43 full-time firefighters. That's all we had. So I did three things. First thing I did is I leveraged our air resources on initial tech. The moment there were flames, uh, we put our aircraft on it and we quickly got containment of that fire so it didn't spread and cause so much damage, not only risk to people's homes and lives, but also to our forests and to our firefighters. I also had as pre-position all of our fire equipment. So we weren't spending four to six hours in travel time. We pre-positioned based on weather conditions, based on the forest condition and the likelihood of fires in that area. Um, and then the third thing is, to be honest, I'll, you know, it was a very much our local firefighters just focused on their local firefighting, our state engine just focused on ours, and federal just focused, and everybody would all convene to fight fires, and they'd say, I got this, no, I got this, no, I got this, and we had this versus working as one team. It's kind of like if you sent the Seahawks in to, to win the Super Bowl and they had never trained together. So we built a training program where we're training our local, state, and federal firefighting uh, fires together. Um, so they meet, collaborate, coordinate before fires. We then pushed, after we did that, we changed our reputation uh, right away, 2017. Uh, great success and results. The legislature stepped up. I came forward with the most significant uh, budget ask ever in fire, which uh, secured $50 million dollars for both fire and forest health resources. The second thing is that we're doing, besides the suppression and having the protection resources up front, is getting at one of the root of the problem. Our forests, if healthy, can naturally withstand fire. Fire, before humans were here, fire was on the landscape and forests could handle it. The problem is we have, in many areas, if you look back over time, our forests were not so dense because fires would come in, they take out the weak, uh, trees, the diseased trees, the smaller trees, and allowed the larger trees to get healthier. In fact, if you look at a tree cookie, you know what a tree cookie is? No. A it's when you take the ring, you take a slice of the tree, okay. and it's called a tree cookie. <laughs> I know, I just love saying because nobody knows about it. But the tree, you will actually see where there has been a fire that has impacted that tree. You'll see multiple fires. If you take a large old tree, and you'll see that the amount of growth that happens post-fire is significant. It actually makes that tree stronger and healthier. The problem is we have very dense forests 
in many areas where we stopped fires 50 years ago and prevented them. And then you had more dense forests and then you bring in hotter, drier temperatures. They're all competing for water. They're competing for soil nutrients. They all get weak, right? When disease or insects come in and I'm talking about insects can come in and within three months, actually two months, take out hundreds of acres of forest just by moth or beetle kill. When they're weak like that, they're literally like kindling. It's like if you had kindling in your fireplace, right? And you light a match at it. So what happens is there's so much fuel on that forest floor. All it takes is a lightning spore or some other match and all of it goes up versus it being able to be more resilient to fire. So we have developed uh, the 20-year forest health plan. We have 2.7 million acres of forest in central and eastern Washington alone that are already dead, diseased, and dying. Half of that is federal land. The next significant portion is small forest landowners. State has a role in that and also tribes. So we built a plan that says, if we're going to reduce these catastrophic fires, we have to make our forests more resilient, get them back to their original healthy state. We brought in a preeminent forest health scientist from Conservation Northwest, uh, nationally recognized, who now is building that plan and specifically setting for what kinds of forest health treatment needs to happen. Removing the dead disease trees that are like kindling, getting out some of the smaller ones so the larger trees can aren't competing with the smaller ones for it. Taking out the dead branches on the bottom which create um, those crown fires and then bringing prescribed fire back in. Fire again is natural on our landscape. What's not natural is how much fuel load it is um, that wipes everything out. Um, we set a goal of treating 1.25 million acres over the next 20 years. It's about 70,000 acres a year. Um, and we are well on our way to making that progress. And the legislature has been supporting our funding of it. And then the third thing is education. 90% of our uh, fires are caused by humans. We all, I don't know how old everybody is on there. I grew up with Smokey the Bear and I have three boys. And I don't think my boys knew who Smokey was until I got in this job. And, you know, now all of a sudden they know him a little more. But the reality is we have changed. We haven't taught the behaviors of how do you prevent forest fires, campfires, um, I mean, everything, fireworks, all of those things. We have people who are starting fires, 90% of them. And so we are launching that campaign of educating people what they can do to prevent fires, but also how they make their home more resilient to fires. So forest health plan, uh, education, awareness. Um, I do understand that the coronavirus is also proving to be a factor in this year's season with wildfire firefighters. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how they're being impacted? Yeah, so our agency every year is used to fighting wildfires. And every year our fire season, which used to be maybe, uh, you know, late July, August, September, is now starts as early as March and goes well into November. And we oftentimes, when we fight fires, we're competing for resources. We're competing with the Californias and the Colorados and the Oregons and the Montana Wyoming because our season starts later. And as a result, we're usually challenging air resources, National Guard, incident management teams. Every year, we are prepared to be challenged and not have enough resources. In fact, we had to bring up firefighters in 2018 from Australia because I couldn't get any firefighters from anywhere else in the world. Never have we had to fight fires, though, in the context of a global pandemic. So the first way it's impacting us is that management teams are called from all over the nation. They're already being deployed to COVID. National Guard is huge for us 
they're already being deployed and they said we're going they're not going to be able to help they usually send us about 200 firefighters at least and air resources they're going to be stretched thin and not have it the next way we're impacted is that our firefighters they eat sleep and work within six feet of each other there is they have what's called the camp crud where you know i'll have 500 plus firefighters in a camp and of course they're exhausted working 16 hour days in tough conditions they're breathing a lot of that smoke which impacts their respiratory system and the crud takes over and spreads quickly but never has that crud or virus been one that is literally deadly and so we're having to figure out in real time because we've already had 269 fires how do i protect my firefighters not only for fires and the treacherous arduous conditions they're in, but how do I protect them from a global pandemic? First step is we gotta flatten this curve. The sooner we do it, the more I can keep them protected. The second is we are already, we're writing the manual literally as we go, where we are putting in place, not only what we do regular sort of temperature tacking um, of every firefighter consistently every day, because we don't have the COVID test yet, um, we have, will be, each one will be wearing PPE. So they're going to be wearing the mask and protection. They can't wear it on the fire line because it's flammable, but they'll be wearing it in the camps. They'll be wearing it in the health. They'll be wearing it in the engines. Um, and then in addition to that, we are having to uh, figure out how do we maybe reduce the size of our camps so we don't have so many people and we spread them out a little bit. And we'll probably play more of an air game in this one. We will leverage our air resources more. We'll bring in more air resources. That way we can protect our firefighters more easily than if uh, they're all in a line on the ground. I'm going to tell you, this is a new phenomenon. Yeah. And, you know, we got a couple questions related to that, including one from Louise who wanted to know how your uh, annual budget may be impacted this year because of the pandemic. So we already know we're having to make purchases of things we wouldn't usually have to purchase. Like we, I never had to buy, you know, purchase thousands of masks for my firefighters, right? Um, we are, the air resources, while we need them and we usually need, we may not, uh, we're gonna have to figure out how much we need and those will have more of a cost. Um, our goal is to try to reduce the cost of um, our spending, but we will not do that at the risk of failing to protect our communities and protect our firefighters. Those will always be my number one responsibility. Um, and our budget comes after the fact, meaning it's sort of like the emergency, it's like an emergency relief check. My job is to do my best to keep that cost as small as I can, but never at the risk of our communities and our firefighters. I will never ever risk their lives because they're putting them on the line for everybody. We got a ton of questions about wildlife preservation that I would like to get to. And I want to start by talking about protecting our southern resident orca and salmon population. Can you talk a little bit about the work that you've done here? Yeah, absolutely. So we obviously, as we manage 2.6 million acres of aquatic lands, and my background, much of my work has been in salmon recovery, um, either in the legal area or in the policy investment side. And so... As the uh, overseeing 2.6 million acres of aquatic lands, we have already removed 70 Boeing 747s worth of toxic material. So your derelict vessels, your creosote pilings, right? 
we have, um, I have launched an effort. Those um, docks, marinas, leases that are not doing well, they're falling in and dilapidated. How do we get them in the improvements um, or change the ownership so that they can get improved? Um, we've made huge strides in that. We got a long ways to go. A lot of those have been in problem situation for 20 plus years. Obviously, when we had a lessee on the Atlantic net pins, uh, when the facility collapsed and over 200,000 Atlantic salmon were released, I immediately terminated that lease to, because my belief is it is a privilege to be able to lease our public lands. And, and doing that, you have a responsibility to maintain and manage those at the highest level. Um, I obviously inherited those leases. They go back to the 1980s. I'm in a lawsuit. I can't say much more about that. It's a pretty significant lawsuit uh, in terminating those leases. Um, and then we've done an enormous amount of salmon habitat restoration projects, including um, actual conservation lands that we have gone and protected and kept um, from development. That being said, we still have a long ways to go. Um, and so we are launching, and I'm, it was going to launch actually like this month, but COVID has slowed a couple of things down, as you can imagine. Um, we are launching a new effort called Trees to Seas. And the, it, the whole context is if um, we first, and if you most often decisions are made as one-offs, not only in my agency, right? I've got uplands and aquatic lands and geology, right? And wildfire, and they're all silos. But then we have agency silos, ecology, WDFW, all the different entities, um, Puget Sound Partnership. The goal is to take a couple of watersheds and literally link the landscape from the highest part of our headwaters, the federal and state lands and the mountains, all the way down to the aquatic lands, hence the trees to the seas bring in our plans owners, federal and state and local government, bring in our tribes, bring in private sector, right? And then identify what are all the barriers and the problems that are challenging. We've replaced all of the culverts we have on our lands, but one, we're in the final works of removing that culvert. Um, as you know, the tribes brought an injunction against the state, um, but our agency has shown leadership and removed all but one of those fish passage barriers. The goal in this, these watersheds will be identifying, here's all the derelict vessels, here's all the creosote pilings, here's all the areas where contaminants are leaking, here's the stormwater because we oversee urban forestry program. Here's the opportunities, we can do projects. I signed an agreement with US Forest Service that allows us to do salmon habitat restoration projects on federal land. So the goal is to link all of those up and we can show that instead of spreading our money and resources out of across the entire state like peanut butter, where you don't get huge benefit for the salmon, that if we tackle some of the most significant watersheds for Chinook, right, which is a critical species for orca, we will see greater return of our forage fish, we will see greater return of our salmon, and thence we will also see healthier results for our orca. Um, that's in addition to the work we're already doing um, of all that. So I'm super excited about this project though, because it's, <laughs> For the first time, our agency, geology, forestry, agriculture, aquatic lands, right, are all of a sudden all coordinated together on one significant project, which is how do we help our salmon, right, and restore habitat. And they had never really talked to each other, right? 
it's so it's it i honestly believe this is about breaking silos down so we get more significant impact we invest our money in better ways i want to talk a little bit about your campaign and particularly let's start with the, the way that it's being financed julie has a question have you signed the fossil fuel money pledge yes i have okay i did that in 2016. Um, some people have expressed concern that you received campaign contributions from Weyerhaeuser and PSE. How do you respond to that? So first of all, I'll take them in two. So Puget Sound Energy, I've worked closely with Puget Sound Energy in the context of clean energy. I launched one of the biggest national energy efficiency campaigns on Bainbridge Island that was hugely recognized. And right now I'm working with them to help build out their 100% clean by 2040 and trying to build it out on our lands. What that means is I need them to be working with us so we can get more solar and more wind production. Um, and so hence there's a partnership and role there. Um, I, most people will tell you I make decisions purely based on the science and based on the policy and law. It's not based on where, who funds me. Um, and Warehouser, the timber, I will say this, is that right now the most sustainable thing we can do is actually grow our wood supply right here in Washington State. The fact is everybody around us, I mean, COVID has presented the importance of toilet paper, which we all knew was important, but had no idea at how much important it was until we were afraid we weren't gonna get any. But everybody uh, you know, sees all around um, how much we use wood from toilet paper to building supply and product. The most sustainable thing we can do is truly grow our wood supply here in Washington state. And if the reality is we are losing millions of acres over the last 10, 20 years of conversion of agricultural land and forest land to subdivisions and development. Small forest landowners are one of the most uh, are aging populations and they are converting their land at a greater pace and scale. When we lose the companies, whether it's the Green Diamonds and the Port Blakely's and others, where they're not investing in timberland working forest land here in Washington state, because we are on such a significant population growth, we will lose that working forest land that we depend on, not only for building supply and product, but also for more sustainable land use than subdivisions. And so I believe it's a partnership opportunity. I do believe in the importance of regulation. I, am, I believe in the importance of timber being regulated and protected, but I don't believe in the loss of our timber working forest lands. I believe we need, to be we need to be committed to ensuring that this state has working forest land and working agriculture lands to be able to protect our environment and provide our basic services that we have for housing. Uh, Brittany wants to know how you are going to implement the localization of food and agriculture and more clean energy sources in our state. Uh, you've addressed this a little bit, but I wonder if you get a little more granular. So I think one of the most, let's just say agriculture, one of the things that I've been doing, we've been seeing the massive conversion of agricultural lands. I mean, you can look up and down the I-5 corridor, you can go out into the Tri-Cities areas that has been, un, and part of our role is making sure our agricultural lands, those high value agricultural lands continue to be in production and we help reduce the conversion of other private agricultural lands. One of the ways we can do that is by actually investing in the processing facilities that are needed, right? for agriculture to be productive. And here's a perfect example. I'm just gonna use the vineyards again, maybe because I need a glass of wine by this time. I can go into <laughs> But in the Tri-Cities, Tri-Cities is one of the fastest growing areas uh, 
per subdivision. I mean, we're talking about one acre, one acre. I mean, they're just spreading everywhere, um, which we know is was overtaking some of the most high value prime agriculture land. We had thousands of acres of land there that was under Department of Natural Resource Management in, in trust for school funding. And it was generating $0 for 30, 40 years. And the land around it was converting into houses because a processing facility was built right there near our lands on the edge of town. We now have thousands of acres of agricultural land that are now in vineyard production and thousands of acres of private land that was slated to be developed has now also been planted into, it's generating about $1,100 an acre for schools, but it's also created a new economic opportunity for that community that is not based on development, industrial, commercial, residential, but is based on ag production. The way we get at ensuring more localized agriculture production is one, ensure that our land use and that we have sufficient and significant amount of working agriculture land, that we're investing in the processing facilities and the infrastructure that that agriculture land needs to be productive. And that ideally we're also looking at more community owned agriculture production uh, opportunities, right? Cat, the, the beef example was a perfect, where many of the processing facilities are not locally owned. The, the producer of that beef doesn't get the fair value for the growth of it and is actually getting robbed of that opportunity, right? Um, the same with energy. And this is some of the conversations we're doing with Shalane and Wenatchee is this context of um, energy independence, energy resilience are going to be absolutely key. They already are and even more so. So how do we identify what their full energy needs are and how do we start to build that out on the landscape, not allowing work forest land or agricultural land or sage land to be lost, but the right types of land to be going to solar and wind development and other types. I want to get you onto your glass of wine. So just a couple questions and then we'll wrap up. Uh, I, I will ask you what you are, and you've talked about so much tonight, but I'll ask you to just lay out a, a few specific items for us. What are you hoping to achieve in your next term? So first I would say the climate resilience plan um, and the carbon sequestration strategy are significant. We just, it, it's taken a lot of years to do that climate resilience plan. There's an enormous amount of science. You can go on our website and, and, and read it, um, but it's gonna take work to implement it. And no other agency is doing in the state. I don't think very few states are even launching it. And our goal is to not only be at the state agency level, but drive it down at the community. So every community is starting to build its own climate resilience plan. The carbon sequestration strategy is going to be significant. My goal is I'm not waiting until there's a market system that's created by the legislature. We don't have time to waste. I'm going to leverage what the knowledge and experience of California and BC that I've partnered with, and let's start to build it. So first and foremost, that is number one of my top priorities. I've got to continue on the wildfire and forest health plan. I do believe we are going to change the trajectories of these catastrophic fires, but we can't let up on the work we've already done. And that means continued investment. Every year we're having to beg for dollars to implement both those plans. As long as that's happening, we're in a failed state because you never know when the money is not going to be there like COVID. Um, and so finding a funding strategy and stream for that will be key. I'm, then another key piece is economic development. I, again, truly believe that the environment and the economy do not have to be working against each other. I think COVID has raised a perfect opportunity for us to think more in, 
intelligently and strategically and more community-based about how we are able to strengthen our rural communities and economies and at the same time not have our environment be harmed or lost. And honestly, I don't think when I go spend time with the farmers and the foresters, they are there. They get it right? But we've never developed a partnership and initiative that makes sure that there is that local revenue is staying there and investing in that community. Um, and then the salmon strategy, the trees to seas, we're going to be launching it this year. I think it's groundbreaking work. I think it will be nationally recognized work. I think it's going to transform the way we're making investments and how we make investments that breaks down silos, but also make sure we're getting true impact on the ground and not spreading it thin. Um, as my team would say, she'll probably have another idea next week. But <laughs> my goal is to stay focused on those right there um, front and center. And I will say one last thing. Yep. Not a day goes by as I oversee Washington State Geology. We have five live volcanoes. We have the threat of a big earthquake. We have tsunamis, landslides, fires, right? COVID has raised front and center how unprepared we are. Unprepared we are. Um to deal with a global pandemic or a natural disaster. And I will continue to raise the flag about how if you invest proactively in communities to make them more resilient to natural disasters, health disasters, over, we will spend less money on the back end, we will save more lives and our economy will be far stronger to be able to manage these ups and downs. Yep. Yeah. So preparation, infrastructure, carbon sequestration, invest in wildlife and wildfire prevention, economic development, trees to seas. These are all hallmarks of what you've you've done. Uh, we we absolutely would love to see more of that. So Hillary friends, uh, thank you. I will just before we sign off, I will ask you where people can learn more about your campaign. Yeah, so go to www.hillaryfranz.com. It's one L. I'm the one L Hillary that was on the ballot in 2016. So just um, and so, um, and then you can, my email is Hillary at HillaryFranz.com, again, one L. So, and then check out our website to the DNR website. There's enormous amount of information on there, enormous amount of science. We have some of the preeminent scientists in the aquatic areas as well as land management. So fountain of information. So thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you again to our guest, Commissioner of Public Lands, Hillary Franz. Thanks again to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julie Andrzejewski with Indivisible Tacoma. And special thanks to Louise Bonte for her help. A reminder to join us Tuesday, May 26th and Thursday, May 28th for a conversation with candidates who are running for state legislature in the 10th Legislative District. And that is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org. Our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at DemcastUSA.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell, and as always, my thanks to you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye.